Turn with me in your Bibles or on your electronic device to Matthew 6. And I want to read verses 19 to 24. Several weeks ago, when I was asked to fill in for Steve, I had just finished teaching through this passage in my Sunday school class. So it was very fresh on my mind. And since the people in my class are the only ones who've already heard this, I decided I would teach it to all of you also. I hope that when we finish today, all of us will have a better understanding of how this passage applies to our lives. Let's begin by reading it. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. All of us recognize that we live in a materialistic consumer society that is constantly telling us that life at its best consists of having more and more possessions and pleasures. In fact, years ago, there was a popular bumper sticker which said, he who dies with the most toys wins. As Christians, we know that that is patently false and blatantly heretical, but it's clearly explanatory of our world's viewpoint towards materialism. However, the tug of materialism is so strong that many of us try a balancing act between what the Bible teaches and what Madison Avenue says, between the spiritual riches God offers us in Christ and the worldly treasures which cannot feed our souls. Sadly, many Christians lose that balance and the results are devastating. The question that arises out of this text is very simple. Where is your heart? And the answer is found in verse 21. It's wherever your treasure is. Now, when I ask, where is your heart? I'm obviously not talking about anatomy or physiology. I'm sure you recognize that I'm talking about it in terms of the investment of your life, your motives, your attitudes, your thought processes, your patterns of life. Where is the concentration and preoccupation of your life? What do you spend most of your time thinking about and planning for? What is most of your energy directed towards? If you ask that question to most Americans, the answer you would receive would be some, something along the lines of my house, my car, my bank account, my investments, my retirement plans, or my personal appearance in terms of my clothing, shoes, hair, cosmetics, or whatever. All of those are just things, aren't they? And we really are a society committed to things. And sadly, the leading religious leaders of Jesus' day had the same problem. They were totally consumed with things among all of the other problems of the Pharisees, this was also to be included. They were thing-oriented. They were greedy, covetous, manipulative, and they constantly sought after more and more things. So as we come to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus directs some statements about things to the Pharisees who were abusing the issue of possessions. Now understand that the thrust of the whole Sermon on the Mount which covers Matthew 5 through 7, is basically to sweep away the inadequate, insufficient, self-righteous standard of the Pharisees and to reaffirm God's divine standard for life in his kingdom. And the key to the whole sermon is found in chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, to be in my kingdom, you must live up to God's standard. And he affirms God's standard in contrast to the Pharisees' standard. And so in verses 19 to 24 of chapter 6, he says you must also have the right attitude towards wealth and luxuries. And then from verses 25 to 34, you must have the right view of necessities. And so he's talking about things here. First, luxuries, and then necessities. And in both cases, the Pharisees had missed it. They had the wrong perspective of both wealth and necessities. 
And so this week we will study verses 19 to 24 and see what Jesus has to say about how we view our luxuries and wealth. And next week we will study verses 25 to 34 and see what Jesus had to say about worrying about the necessities of life. Now, if you're thinking I'm not wealthy, think again. We live in a society where all of us are wealthy in comparison to the way most of the rest of the world lives. If you don't think so, then you haven't been outside your little box to see how most of the people in this world live. The USA has a median annual income of over $19,000 per person. By way of contrast, if you went on a mission trip with SOS Ministries to Honduras, the median annual income there is only about 11% of ours, or roughly $2,000 a year. And in Nigeria, where some of our elders have ministered with SOS Ministries, it's only 4% of ours, or about $800 per year. So, in terms of most of the rest of the world, we are exceedingly wealthy. You may not be wealthy in this society, but you are very wealthy compared to most other societies in the world. So this text is talking about how we handle our luxuries, that is our possessions beyond eating and drinking a very simple meal, owning a few clothes, and having a place to sleep. And if we're part of his kingdom, we have to face what he says here. This is a very convicting and heart-searching passage. Now please don't think, well, he's going to be talking about money and I don't want him messing around with my approach to that, so I think I'll just go ahead and doze off now. Or I'll pretend I need to go to the bathroom and just leave now. Uh, no, you need to be here because this isn't my message. This is God's word to us. And God's word always talks about issues which if we obey what he says about them, we will receive his blessings. And how we handle and deal with money is one of those areas. Now Jesus has been talking, as I said, about the Pharisees' hypocritical religious practices in this chapter. And it follows that after talking about their hypocrisy, he would talk about their view of wealth and money. Because inevitably, where you have false religion, you have greed. You, wherever you encounter a false teacher, if you go behind the scenes, you will find that he is greedy and in it for money. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.3 that false teachers exploit people with false words because of their greed. And in 2 Peter 1.14, he says they have a heart trained in greed. Paul told Titus to silence the false teachers on Crete because they were teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. That's why both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where Paul is giving the qualifications for elders and deacons, he says they must not be fond of sordid gain. Church leaders are not to be men who discharge their ministry for the sake of greedy financial gain because that is inevitable in false teachers. In fact, the Bible usually characterizes hypocritical religion in two ways. It is greedy for money and it is immoral in its lusts. Those two things characterize the course of false religions and the leaders of those false religions. Well, the Pharisees were using their religious position to fill their pockets and get rich. And let me tell you, there's nothing more foul-smelling in the nostrils of God than that. To the Pharisees, to be rich was to be holy. To be rich was to say, look how much I've got. I'm rich because God is blessing me. And they were the first prosperity preachers. That's why when the Lord said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, it was absolutely shocking to them because they thought riches were the stamp of divine approval on your life. They thought God gave you wealth because you were so righteous. They equated money with the blessing of God. That was their whole system. And just like the health and wealth prosperity preachers of our day, they misapplied verses such as Proverbs 10.22, which says, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. They twisted scripture to fit their own corrupt desire for money. Now the Old Testament warned against this attitude. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, Solomon said, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. In Exodus 20:17, the 10th commandment says, you shall not covet. In Proverbs 23, 4, Solomon says, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. 
And in, in Proverbs 28, 20, it says, A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. Right there, it clearly says that God's blessing comes by means of faithfulness, but chasing after wealth and riches will result in his judgment. But in spite of all of those warnings, Luke 16, 14 says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. They were covetous. They wanted money. They wanted wealth, material wealth and possessions. And so it's against the backdrop of the greed of the Pharisees that Jesus speaks. And what he is saying here is that we must have the proper view of money, wealth, and possessions. You see, we must handle our possessions, money, wealth, and luxuries like we do anything else. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But our problem is that we do so much of it into the indulgence of self. And so in teaching us how to deal with our luxuries, Jesus presents three choices. There are two treasuries, there are two visions, and there are two masters that he gives us in this text. The Lord gives us three choices that determine where our heart is. Three choices about what we will do if we're going to properly handle our wealth. Let's begin by looking at our first choice in verses 19 to 21. It is an earthly treasury or a heavenly treasury. Look again at verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now this introduces us to the whole concept of our money. I know that you all remember what Paul told Timothy that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced himself with many griefs. Money itself is not evil, it's the love of it. You can have none of it and yet love it like crazy. It's the love of money that corrupts. Think of Achan. Instead of inheriting the promised land, he died with his entire family because he decided to take what God said they were not to take. His love of money cost him and his family their lives. And then you'll recall the story of Solomon who kept amassing fortunes and fortunes and fortunes until he was the wealthiest man in the world. And when it was all said and done, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It was just empty, useless, meaningless, and void. And then there was Ananias and Sapphira who decided they were going to keep some of the money they promised to the Lord and God struck them dead. And Judas sold the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver and you could go through many other illustrations of people who because of the love of money were devastated and destroyed to some degree or another. And so we all need to learn about this because it is self-destructive if we don't learn to handle money in the manner God intends for us. And it's not only self-destructive, but it is destructive for those around us, such as our immediate family, if we don't handle money the way God wants us to. And so we have to understand what he is saying. Let's begin with the first part of verse 19. It says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you literally translate what Jesus says here, it is, do not treasure up treasures for yourself. In other words, don't stockpile up money and things. What Jesus is talking about here is not the necessities of life that we use to live each day, but that which we just pile up and accumulate. Please understand, it's, it's not the things we use to meet basic needs of our own lives, food, clothing, shelter. Nor is it that that we use to assist the poor or to give to the Lord's work. It's not the money that we set aside and save for future needs or for making wise investments so that we can be better stewards of God's money in days to come. Rather, he's talking about the money and things that we stockpile and amass just for our own selves. He's talking about luxury. He's talking about that which is beyond what we can possibly use. It's all those things you don't use. You just stash somewhere and keep saying, oh, they're so valuable. So you keep them. And the implication is that there is an abundance too numerous to use. And so you just pile it up. So what do we mean here? What's he forbidding? Is he forbidding a bank account, a savings account, a life insurance policy, a wise investment? Does he mean we shouldn't possess anything? Well, some people have taken it that way. 
They say, well, this means you shouldn't buy life insurance or have a savings account because those things just indicate a lack of faith in God. And, and some people who think along those lines go even further and say, well, this means you shouldn't own anything. After all, Jesus told the rich young ruler, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. Well, have you ever noticed that that guy was the only person Jesus ever said that to? He didn't say that to Mary and Martha. And there's plenty of evidence to indicate that their family was wealthy in comparison to the rest of society. It was a matter of the rich young ruler's heart and the hearts of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The reason he told the rich young ruler to sell all that he had was because his possessions stood between him and God. Until he got rid of them, there could be no connection between them. It provided an excellent opportunity to test whether or not that man was fully committed to turning over control of his life to Christ and his response proved that he was not. The problem was not the wealth itself, but the man's unwillingness to part with it. So the Lord is not looking down on the ownership of property and possessions. Otherwise, why would he have told the Jews in Deuteronomy 28.11 that if they obeyed him, he would make them abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your beasts, in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you? No, the Lord isn't saying that we shouldn't possess anything. The Lord recognizes the right to personal property and to own it. We already mentioned Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, but they had a piece of property and they said, hey, let's sell this property. We'll give all the money to the Lord. And then after they sold it, they told the apostles they had sold it for all the money that they gave to the Lord's work. But the reality was that they held back some of the money for themselves. And the Lord killed them and they just, they just dropped dead right there in front of the apostles and the other members of the church who were there. But before he killed them, God gave them a message through Peter. Listen to Acts 5, 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, it was yours. You had power over it. You had control over it. You didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to promise to give all the money to the Lord. The point is that it was theirs. But once they'd given it in promise, they needed to follow that through. The Lord has given us the right to possess things. All he wants is to be sure that our attitude is right in the manner in which we possess them. For example, in Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. God is the one who has given us the power to make wealth. God has given us the resources and abilities to accomplish that. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul tells Timothy, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. In other words, Timothy, tell the wealthy Ephesians not to be conceited about how they gain their riches, nor to depend upon them, but rather to fix their hope on God, who, notice this, richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Isn't that great? And it comes in a section about money. So God has given it to us to enjoy it. We don't have to live a monastic life. Think about the great men of God in Scripture who were wealthy. Job, very wealthy. God let Satan take it all away as a test of Job's righteous fidelity to him. And after he passed the test, God gave him back double what he had lost so that he became an extremely wealthy man. Abraham, very rich. He was called the friend of God. And Zacchaeus, very rich. He was the chief tax collector, so he gained a whole lot of money by greed and corruption. But after encountering Jesus and coming to faith, Jesus announced that the salvation had come to his house and declared him to be a son of Abraham. So then what's Jesus saying then? What is he forbidding here when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth? What does that mean? Well, he's not talking about what we have. He's talking about our attitude towards what we have. It's right to seek needed things. It's right to provide for our families. It's right to plan for the future. It's right to make investments. It's right to help the poor. It's right to have enough to carry on our business. But it's wrong to be greedy. 
It's wrong to be covetous. And so we come right back to the primary motive again. If I am doing this to use it to the glory of God and the life of those around him and for his kingdom, then I have a right to all of it. But if I'm seeking after it to stockpile it, to hoard it, to keep it, to amass it, just so I can indulge myself in it, then that's sin. And you're right back to dealing with that attitude again. So you see, it isn't the issue of whether you have money. It's the issue of what you do with what you have, isn't it? Whether it's for you or for the kingdom of God and his purposes. Colossians 3.5 says that greed amounts to idolatry and that's what Jesus has in mind here. Money becomes your God. The things that we possess can become idols in our lives. And so Jesus is saying, don't pile up stuff. The selfish accumulation of goods, extravagant luxury, breeds hard-heartedness towards the cause of God. Look at verse 19 again. The key to Jesus' warning here are the words, for yourselves. When we accumulate possessions simply for our own sakes, whether to hoard them or to spend them selfishly and extravagantly, those possessions become idols. If I want to invest and pursue a successful business, if I want to be honest in what I do and do the best I can for my family and for others and for God and for the poor, that's one thing. But when I start piling it up for myself in extravagant luxury and become materialistic, then I have violated this principle. Martin Lloyd-Jones told the story of a farmer who bounded joyfully into his kitchen one day with a big grin on his face and announced to his wife that their finest cow had just given birth to twins, one brown and one white. And he said, honey, I feel the impulse to dedicate one of these cows to the Lord. We'll bring them up together. And when they're at a marketable age, we'll sell them and we'll keep the proceeds from one and we'll give the proceeds from the other to the Lord. And his wife went right to the heart of the issue, as wives are prone to do, and asked, which one is the Lord's cow? Is it the white one or the brown one? And he replied, well, there's no need to worry about that, dear. We don't need to decide that now since we'll raise them together. And some months later, he entered the kitchen a little more slowly, looking very sad. And his wife asked him why he was so sullen, to which he replied, I have bad news, dear. The Lord's cow died. <laughs> I guess we laugh at that because we identify with that kind of approach. Because we all tend to store up treasure on earth. The pull of sin in us drags us down like gravity and we want to be rich towards self and poor towards God. So it's usually the Lord's cow that dies. Now as we said back at the beginning that we have to choose between an earthly treasury and a heavenly treasury. What happens if we choose the earthly treasury? We'll look at the end of verse 19, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But by way of contrast, if we store up treasures in heaven, moth and rust and thieves cannot do any damage to our treasure. Now this is interesting. In the Middle East in biblical times, wealth was usually kept in three ways. They didn't have a banking system like we have. Their wealth was kept in commodities and basically there were three. And they all start with the letter G. They were garments, grain, and gold. Now by gold, we include other precious metals like silver, bronze, copper, and gemstones. Now that's not to say there weren't other items of great value that indicated wealth, but those were the three primary things. In biblical times, garments were a very important commodity. In 2 Kings 5, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, wished to make a forbidden prophet out of Naaman's curing of leprosy. And so he asked Naaman for a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Because in that culture, fancy garments were very expensive. And so to possess them was to have wealth. What well, was one of the things Nathan took in the defeat at Jericho? A costly, ornate cloak or robe. And when Joseph was... Reunited with his brothers, he gave his brother Benjamin five changes of garments as a symbol of his love. You see, garments were always an expression of wealth because they were a commodity of great value. The common people, the vast majority of people, usually owned no more than two sets of clothing. One to wear and another to wear when the first set got too dirty. And many only had one set. 
So, and most people own some kind of cloak to wrap around them in cold weather. The, the wealthy might own a few more changes of clothing, and often they would have a set for very special occasions, banquets, weddings, and other special events. And that set would be very fancy, sometimes with gold threads woven into the garment. Remember that all the garments were made by hand, and the materials themselves were woven by hand. Dyeing presses, processes, dyeing processes to get certain colors were unique, being based on the use of various plants and sea life that they used to obtain a variety of colored dyes. And so clothing was often very expensive. And anyone who had more than two sets of clothing was considered wealthy. People simply didn't have a closet and a dresser drawer full of clothes like we have in the American culture. Even the wealthiest had far less clothing than the average American does today. But they had a problem with their garments. You see, one of the primary materials from which they made clothing was wool. Wool clothing and blankets were very good for the cold weather during the winter and on the chilly nights in the Middle East. But they had a problem. Moths. Moths loved to eat wool clothing. And in biblical times, they couldn't prevent that from happening. Even the richest people had difficulty in keeping and maintaining their woolen garments because of the moths. They didn't have mothballs and modern pest control procedures to kill and ward off the moths and so they were easily damaged these woolen garments and thus rendered them worthless another way they stored their wealth was in grain remember what the rich fool said this is what I will do I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods his wealth was in grain now do you notice that word rust that's used in verses 19 and 20 well, let me burst one of those common traditional theological bubbles here. Despite the fact that the King James Version translators used the word rust to translate this word, there is neither biblical nor non-biblical evidence for this word to be translated that way. The word means eating or consuming. The early Bible translators took it to mean rust in which the oxidation of metal destroys the quality and value of the metal. But neither pure gold nor pure silver will rust. If they're mixed with an alloy, the alloy might rust, but not the gold and silver. Pure gold coins that have been recovered from sunken ships that have been there for a couple of hundred years in salt water, they still shine brightly. Even the foremost dictionary of the biblical Greek language states that the interpretation corrosion or rust finds no support outside this passage. But because it was such a long-standing tradition to translate the word as rust, several translations have continued to do so. I, I really wish they didn't do that. There are a couple of the modern translations that translate it more in line with what the word is referring to. They use words such as vermin or consuming insect. Do you know what the problem with storing grains was then and continues to be now? Mice, rats, worms, all kinds of vermin. They eat it. They consume it. Even today, according to official government sources, at least 20% of all the world's stored grain is eaten or contaminated by rats and mice each year. Can you imagine what the percentage was in biblical times? when they didn't have the pesticides and other rodent control methods we have today. And the problem is that if you have all your wealth tied up in grain, those little critters are going to get in there and eat it up. There was a third commodity they put their treasure into. That was gold or precious metals. And of course, the problem with that was that thieves break in and steal. The word Jesus uses here that's translated break in is a word which actually means to dig through. The word refers to thieves digging through the mud walls and mud bricks of the side of a house or building to steal the treasure inside. So you would lose your riches that way. So your garments would be eaten by moths, your grain would be eaten by whatever kind of insect or vermin got in it, and your gold would be taken away by thieves who would dig through the walls of your house or wherever you'd hidden it to steal it. Jesus' point is that if you hoard it, you're going to lose it. It's unsafe and insecure. Nothing you treasure up here on this earth is safe and secure. And even if we manage to keep our possessions perfectly secure during our entire lives, we're certainly separated from them at death. You're going to leave it all behind. So where's your treasure? Is it always the Lord's cow that dies or do you invest in his kingdom? 
There are two treasuries, one earthly and one heavenly. And since the earthly treasure is subject to being destroyed or stolen, Jesus says that instead we are to, verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. When our time, energy, and possessions are used to serve others and to further the Lord's work, they build up heavenly resources that are completely free from destruction or theft. Heavenly security is the only absolute security. But then Jesus takes it a step further. He points out in verse 21 that a person's most treasured, cherished possessions and his deepest motives and desires are inseparable. He says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Either they will both be earthly or they will both be heavenly. It's impossible to have one here on earth and the other in heaven. Your treasure is always going to be where your heart is. Jesus is not saying that if we put our treasure in the right place, then our heart will be in the right place, but rather that the location of our treasure indicates where our heart already is. Spiritual problems are always heart problems. Sinful acts come from a sinful heart just as righteous acts come from a righteous heart. So as always, the heart must be right first. In fact, if the heart is right, everything else in life falls into its proper place. When the Bible uses that term, it refers to the whole inner man, the core of our total being, the wellspring of all we do. That means Jesus is telling us that where our treasure is, there will be our total being. Not only will our affections focus on our treasure, but our entire self will be entwined with it. And as a result, what happens to our treasure happens to us. So in terms of spiritual life, you're always dealing with a heart attitude. Because it's out of the heart that man operates. Proverbs 23, 7 says about a man, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. When the heart is right, our treasure will be sent towards God because where our treasure is, our heart has an inseparable attachment to that. And conversely, wherever our heart is, that's where we put our treasure. God's principle for his children has always been the same. Back in Proverbs 3, 9, it says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Give him the first part. You don't want it to be the Lord's cow that died. Giving to the Lord's work is to be a priority for a Christian. And as the result, verse 10, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. You will never be able to invest with God without getting a dividend. You'll get all the investment back and more. Over in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul said, For this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's the Lord's formula for earning eternal dividends in the heavenly treasury. In Luke 6, 38, Jesus said, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. In other words, God only gives you a return on what you've invested. All spiritual life long, we fight the battle of where we put our treasure, our luxury, our wealth. Put it in heaven. Receive an eternal dividend. Listen to Proverbs 19, 17. This is a verse to highlight or underline in your Bible. It says, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. Now, what's the basic principle of a loan that you're going to get paid back? So when you're generous and gracious to the poor, you're lending to the Lord. And then the rest of the verse says, and he will repay him for his good deed. God will pay you eternal dividends. So don't be earthbound. Don't put treasure in this world. Don't stockpile your stuff here. Invest it in forever. That's the heart of the matter. Now, what is this treasure in heaven that we're to store up? What's he really talking about here? Well, we could say that our treasure in heaven is Christ more than anything else, or that our treasure in heaven is a faithfulness that will never be removed, a life that will never end, and a love that will never cease. Yeah, we could talk about it in those kinds of generalities, but let's talk in very, very specific terms, what's he talking about here? Very simply stated, folks, it's our money, our luxury, our wealth. Let me show you this. Look at 1 Timothy 6 for a moment. This is a comparative passage which essentially indicates to us the very same thing. We already saw verse 17 in which 
Paul writes to Timothy and says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. In other words, don't let your riches make you proud. Don't trust in them, but instead trust in God who gives us our wealth. Now watch verses 18 and 19. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Did you get that? The call of God upon our lives regarding our luxuries and our wealth is that we would distribute and share as opposed to hoarding it and stockpiling it. And the word translated storing up in verse 19 is the very same verb that we talked about in verses 19 and 20 of our text in Matthew 6, treasuring for themselves treasure. What does it mean to store up treasure in heaven? It means to be generous and to share the riches that God has given to us. In other words, we are to be generous and giving and sharing the riches and wealth God has given us here on earth. When we do that, we are preparing ourselves to receive the full potential of all that eternal life can mean. The more I send ahead to glory, the greater the glory when I get there. The greater the investment, the greater the reward. In Mark 10, 21, Jesus told the rich young ruler, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And we tend to look at that and think, well, he has consumed with his own wealth and possessions and wasn't willing to give up any of it to follow Christ. And that's true. But we often miss the point that we may say we're willing to give up all to follow Christ. But is that really true? How attached are we to the money and things we possess? Are we willing to give up our earthly treasure in order to gain heavenly treasure? Turn with me to Luke 16. I want to just sort of bed down in this passage for a bit. Jesus has just given the parable of the unrighteous steward who got in, into trouble with his master over the management of his master's money. And then he shrewdly got out of trouble by collecting some of the money from those who owed his master money. And then Jesus says in verse 9, But I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. First understand that he calls money the wealth of unrighteousness, because in and of itself, it has no righteous value. And then when he speaks of the making of friends for yourself by means of that money, he's saying to invest it in gospel ministry in evangelizing the lost so that they will become believers and thus your friends. And then when you invest your money in the souls of people, those who die before you will someday greet you in thanksgiving when you step through the gates of heaven. When you use your money to reach the lost with the gospel, those who receive Christ will become your friends who will receive you into the eternal dwellings of heaven. And then Jesus gives this self-evident statement in verse 10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. What he's saying is that your circumstances don't determine faithfulness, your character does. I hear some people say, well, if I had more, I would give more. No, they wouldn't. It doesn't matter how much you have. People who have everything often give nothing. It's never about circumstances. It's about whether you're looking at heaven or looking at earth. It's whichever perspective has captured your heart. It's not, if I only had more, I would give more. It's what are you doing with a dollar that you have? If you're concerned about what is eternal, if you're concerned about your money being used by God to promote gospel proclamation around the world, that will be your perspective whether you have a little or whether you have a lot. Dealing with money from a heavenly viewpoint is never a matter of how much you have. It's about integrity and spiritual character. If you're interested in investing in eternity, you do it. If you're not, you don't. Instead, you spend your time fiddling around with it on things that just burn up. No matter how little you have, how much you have, it's, it's where your heart is that your treasure goes. The amount you possess is not the test of your character. To say it another way, verse 11, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? 
you got a problem here. Not only is what you do with your money an indication of faithfulness or unrighteousness, but it's an implication for eternal reward. That's what verse 11 is saying. Jesus is saying, look, if you haven't been faithful in how you employed your unrighteous money, who will entrust the true riches to you? Do you think you're going to get a reward in heaven for that? Folks, if you don't invest your wealth in the work of redemption, you're impoverishing yourself in your eternal future. Jesus is saying, do you think God is going to reward you in eternity if you frittered away and wasted your stewardship of what he gave you in this life? In other words, you can buy yourself endless junk and trinkets and creature comforts and earthly possessions, all those things that are going to burn up. And when you come into the presence of the Lord, you shouldn't expect him to give you the true riches that come to those who are faithful. And then he zaps them again in verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? He started out in verse 10 with a general issue of faithfulness in little or much. Then he moved to faithfulness with money. And now he moves to the fact that the money that you've been unfaithful with isn't even yours. This is a stewardship. You don't even own what you think you own. It belongs to someone else. Who? God. You're just a steward. You're like the steward in the story. This is the connection back to the parable. You don't own what you have. It all belongs to God. Everything you have is a stewardship, not just the money you give to God and not just what you give to the church. Everything you have belongs to God. It's all to be used for His glory. Everything, even your eating and drinking, is to be to the glory of God. And if you're sinful in the use of your money, then who's going to entrust you the true riches? You're going to forfeit your reward. If you haven't been faithful in using that which belongs to God, then who's going to give you that which is your own? Which is another way of saying you're also going to forfeit your eternal reward. You won't receive that you look forward to. You know, all true believers will be in heaven, but we're not all going to receive the same level of commendation and we're not all going to receive the same rewards. So look at your own heart. How faithful are you in how you use your money, understanding that this has implications for your eternal reward. And if you're not faithful in that, you'll forfeit that which really could belong to you in eternity. You have to have the 2 Corinthians 4.18 perspective. It says, We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Well, let's go back to Matthew 6 and move on in our study. Because Jesus didn't stop at the end of verse 21. From speaking about two treasuries, an earthly one and a heavenly one, now he speaks about seeing light or seeing darkness. Look at verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. And if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now so far he's been talking about your heart, and he wants our heart to have a single-minded fixation on and wholehearted devotion to the kingdom of God. So that our treasure is there, our love is there, our passion is there, our investment is there, our all is there. And then he illustrates that with the eye, which becomes an illustration of the heart. The eye is like the lamp of the body. When we see with our eyes, our body is filled with the light that comes in from the world as they perceive and understand what's in their vision. But if your eye is blind, it's black. There's no light that comes in. You perceive nothing. And that's the way it is with the heart. If your heart is focused on God, it lights your entire spiritual being. But if your heart is focused on material things towards the treasure of the world, the blinds come down on your spiritual perception and you do not see spiritually as you ought to. Jesus takes a physical illustration and he says that the eye is like a window. And if that window is clean and clear, the light floods the body. But if the window is blacked out, no light enters. This is a spiritual metaphor, but there's a richness here I don't want you to miss. You look at the word clear or healthy or good, depending on your translation. I want you to see something I think is fascinating about that word. The word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, to mean singleness of purpose, undivided loyalty. But in addition to that thought, the rabbis taught that an evil eye represented selfishness and a good eye represented generosity. They got that idea from the Old Testament. I'll show you that in a minute. So they said that being full of light is the equivalent to being generous. And thus, various forms of this word are translated either as sincere or generosity or liberality in several places in Scripture. So Jesus is saying that if your heart is represented by the eye, is singly focused on God, and is liberally generous with your wealth, your whole spiritual life will be flooded with spiritual understanding or light. 
What he's saying here is bigger than we often think. Verse 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. That word bad means evil or wicked. It's the evil eye of selfishness like the rabbis said. It's a Jewish colloquialism that means selfish or grudgingly. For example, in Deuteronomy 15.9 where it talks about releasing a slave during the year of Jubilee. It says, Beware that there be no base thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be a sin in you. So if you're stingy and you begrudge him his freedom and refuse to give him anything to help him on his way, you have an evil eye towards him. And Proverbs 28, 22 says, a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. In other words, selfish, ungenerous people chase riches, but don't realize that they're going to end up with nothing. So then Jesus says, you have two treasuries, one in heaven, one on earth, wherever you put your treasure, that's where your heart will be. And if your treasure is in heaven, you're going to have a generous spirit. And that generous spirit is like a seeing eye that floods your spiritual life with perception. But if your treasure is on earth, you're going to see nothing because you will be blinded by the darkness of your greed and covetousness and you'll see nothing. And if that's the case, the end of verse 23 says, if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. He's saying that the person who is materialistic and greedy is spiritually blind because he has no way of recognizing the true light. He thinks he has light, but he does not. And what he thinks to be light is really darkness. And because of his self-deception, how great is the darkness? In other words, that person really isn't a true follower of Christ. It reminds me of what John said in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. Would that include wealth and riches and money? Of course it would. And then John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, he's not even a true believer. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, moral corruption, the lust of the eyes, mental corruption, and the boastful pride of life, materialistic corruption, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The people of the world, unbelievers, are characterized by those three behaviors, and one of them is materialism, boasting about what you've gained in terms of wealth and riches and things in this life and being stingy and greedy. And Jesus says that those who are characterized by such are filled with darkness, self-deceit, and unbelief. So then the call is to exclusive heavenly mindedness, devotion to God, an undivided storing up of treasure in heaven. Let me just simplify the whole thing in one statement. How you handle your money is a sure barometer of your spiritual condition. That's the message of verses 22 and 23. And so you have a choice between storing up treasure in a heavenly treasury and earthly treasury and a choice between living in the light or living in the darkness, and how you use your money and wealth reveals which ones you're choosing. Finally, we come to the final choice, which is this. Which master are you going to serve, God or wealth? Verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You see that verb serve there? It's a Greek verb which means to work as a slave. Jesus is saying that you can't be a slave to two masters because slavery by definition means single ownership and full-time service. A slave was not considered to be a person. A slave was considered to be a thing. A slave had no rights. A master could beat a slave, kill a slave, or sell a slave. A slave was a living tool, no different than a plow or a cow or anything else. A slave was a thing. To be a slave was to be the property of the master to be constantly, totally, entirely, 100% devoted to obedience to that one master. It would be utterly impossible to serve in that way for two different masters. You can no more serve two masters at the same time than you can walk in two directions at the same time. You'll either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. Invariably, you will regard those two masters differently from one another. And then Jesus concludes with these words, you cannot serve God and wealth. Or to read it with a meaning that's implied in the Greek, it's impossible to be enslaved to God and enslaved to wealth at the same time. The word cannot there is a very strong word that signifies sheer impossibility. So God can only be served with single-mindedness. And if you try to split your allegiance between both him and money, you'll either hate him or money. You cannot love 
and serve both equally. The orders of these two masters are diametrically opposed. The one commands you to walk by faith. The other says to walk by sight. The one calls you to be humble. The other calls you to be proud. One calls you to love light. The other to love darkness. The one says to set your affections on things above. The other says to set them on the things of the earth. One calls you to look at the things that are unseen and eternal. The other calls you to look at the things you can see that are temporal. One of these masters says to be anxious for nothing. The other pulls you in all kinds of anxiety and fear. And so they're diametrically opposed. You can't serve them both. J.C. Ryle, the great Bible teacher of the 1800s, once said, singleness of purpose is one great secret of spiritual prosperity. It's that absolute focus that makes you spiritually rich. And would you rather be eternally rich or temporally rich? It's a matter of which master you serve. Where's the safest place then to put your treasure? Where you're going to have the clearest spiritual sight. Where you're going to be able to serve the right master. The possession of wealth is not a sin, but it's a great responsibility. John Calvin once said, Where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. That's the issue, plain and simple. Who will be our master? Our money or God? Well, that's what Jesus had to say about handling our wealth. Perhaps you're, you're sitting there thinking, Bruce, I don't have to worry about wealth because I don't have enough money to pay my bills. With inflation like it is and rising prices, I'm not sure I'll have enough money this month to pay my rent or my mortgage and have enough left over to provide food for my family and gas for my car. So what you've taught this morning doesn't apply to me. Well, come back next Sunday because in the next section, Jesus directly addresses your situation and what your response should be. So we'll look at that next time. But if you're here and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have much bigger problem than how you handle your money. You need to repent of your sin and turn to Christ in saving faith for, for the forgiveness of your sins before it's too late. If you want to know more about how to do that, come see me after we pray and I'll direct you to one of our pastors who will be happy to explain to you how to do that. Let's close for now with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, when we study a passage like this, we walk away convicted that we are so often more concerned about our desires than we are concerned about your desires. Lord, help us to choose wisely about what we do with our money. May we see that we are merely stewards of all that we possess, that all we have actually belongs to you. We ask that you direct our hearts so that we choose the heavenly treasury rather than the earthly one, that our spiritual eyes are filled with your light and not the darkness of this world, and that we will be your slaves rather than the slaves of our wealth. Father, we pray that our focus will be on storing up treasure in heaven and not here on earth. Let our hearts be honest and forthright about these matters. May we never adopt the attitude which says the Lord's cow died and thus shortchange your ministries in order to satisfy our own selfish desires. May we live every moment of our lives in a manner which brings glory to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.